This is Football Social Daily. The spectre of the sack lingers over Stamford Bridge, but is Maurizio truly magic enough to avoid falling to the same fate that his predecessor Potter fell victim to? This is Football Social Daily, an award-winning Premier League podcast. And on today's show, we're going to talk about Chelsea and all of the rumours around the future of Maurizio Pochettino as the Chelsea head coach. Is time up for Poch or is the plan different to what we saw under Potter? We'll talk about that on today's show. We'll also look at Manchester United and a potential new stadium. Do they stick or twist with Old Trafford? My name's Niall. This is Football Social Daily. Welcome along to the show. I'm joined by Marley Anderson and Joel Tudor. How are you doing, boys? Morning. Yep. Doing all right. Good morning. Very, very good. We're just waiting on the days when the big event happens, which is Baby Shola. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> visits the world. Oh, God. Yeah, I might, have, might, need some, uh, might need some time off the podcast and then when that happens. I thought you were going to do a, a podcast in the delivery room at least. Uh, I don't think anyone wants that. That'll be an audio <laughs> only, that one. I mean, pre pre <laughs> pre the actual labour. <laughs> we've, we've still got 12 days yet. Well, probably more, probably slightly more, but yeah, 12 days minimum, I would say. Still trying to get a couple of Sunday League games in there just while uh, while we wait. But uh, negotiations to, over my Sunday League participation are at an impasse at the minute. So you think Daniel Levy is a tough negotiator? You should you should see my eight and a half month pregnant wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Before we talk about Chelsea and before we talk about stadiums in general, on top of the news that Manchester United are considering replacing Old Trafford with a new ground, I wanted to ask you about the transfer window because you mentioned waiting Marley and it felt like we were waiting for ages we're now a week on from the closure of the transfer window it's the 7th of February well six days on really and a lot of people including us said that it was boring and there wasn't a lot to talk about and we kind of lamented the fact that there weren't many signings and we also highlighted that the profit and sustainability rules and the situation that clubs are in financially might have had an impact on that now I've had a few days to reflect was it slightly contradictory of me to label it as a boring uneventful unexciting transfer window when actually that might have been what the Premier League and football in general needed after the habit that clubs have got into of spending so much money on players and this kind of frenzy around which players are going for which money maybe that sort of quiet transfer window was what was needed what do you reckon uh was it needed or was it did they want it I, I don't know um because from a fan perspective, that it's, it, I mean, it used to be one of the, just the best days in the calendar. Transfer deadline day was mad. Like, you know, reporters outside the stadiums, fans messing around from, on live, um, live pieces to camera and stuff. I'm mean, quite often taking it too far, to be fair. Um, but there was plenty of little, like, you know, you start hearing the term deal sheet. You never hear the word deal sheet either. Um, you know, any of the other 364 days of the year than, than January transfer deadline day because deal sheets have to go in by 10 p.m. or whatever. Um, and then the announcement gets made and stuff. Sometimes you have like announcements at 1 a.m. in the morning or, you know, stuff like that. And it's it used to be great, but yeah, it's, I think it's just a, t- a sign of where the Premier League is um, that there's this new profit and sustainability thing and there's points deductions being threatened and things getting um, th- sort of thrashed out of, of what this new process of sustainability looks like. And um, whether we needed it, I'm not sure, but 
whether we were always going to get it. We were definitely always going to get it um, because so many managers, it's one of the biggest cliches out there that January is a hard month to do business in. Nobody wants to sell the best players during the um, the middle of the season. So you tend to get fringe players going to, you know, mid-table-ish clubs like Calvin Phillips going to West Ham, you know, not needed by Man City and wanted by a team that are nowhere near as good as Man City and are going to be finishing, you know, seven or eight places lower at a minimum. So you tend to get uh, deals like that and they don't exactly thrill anyone, but that's... That's all you get. I've read a few articles about this and actually maybe we need to curb our enthusiasm for the transfer window as football fans. Marley's right. People do look at the transfer window as one of the most exciting periods in the football calendar. Yet we always caveat that by saying January is a really difficult time to get business done. Yeah, historically speaking, January, whenever I'm guessing we're coming at the angle of big transfers and that's usually reserved for the clubs who have the biggest finances and they can afford to do that. And to be fair, when you look at the January's gone by, like I mentioned in a podcast previously, it only comes around when a certain player has an issue with his contract or he wants out or he gets wind of interest, like the Alexis Sanchez one, for example, or when Fernando Torres went to Chelsea. They were quite moments in time where something went wrong in that month and they were forcing it and then a club brought out a huge bid and then suddenly it's got the the the, uh, the wheels going on it if that doesn't happen it tends nothing really tends to happen anyway they reserve it for the summertime because like every single manager always talks about january is the most difficult time because because clubs don't want to lose their best players in halfway through the season which is logical and if they do they want a premium so we'd rather just wait until the summer and then do it properly that way so it doesn't really surprise me but alongside all of the premier league sanctions that have been going on as well i think clubs are just a little bit more hesitant now to go fully into it no worries about what they spend i think they're they're being cautious they're waiting until the summer they've budgeted probably even more so now than they have maybe in the last 10 years and i think that's probably one of the main reasons why we've not really seen too much activity to be honest all right well the transfer window is over but is Maurizio Pochettino's stint at Chelsea soon to be over as well? Lots of rumours over his future in the Stamford Bridge hot seat and we'll discuss them next on FSD. This is the award-winning Premier League podcast, Football Social Daily. Thanks for tuning in. My name's Niall, Joel and Marley are with me. And if you like the podcast, leave us a review. That would mean a lot to us, whether that's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or elsewhere. And also, if you hit subscribe or follow on this podcast feed, whenever we release a new show, you'll not miss an episode if you do that. You can also get in touch with us on social media. Links in the description and link to the Telegram group is in there as well. And Joel, in the Telegram group, was a comparison, a side-by-side of Maurizio Pochettino's time at Chelsea so far and Graham Potter's ill-fated time in the Stamford Bridge dugout. And after the same amount of games, Graham Potter, I think, actually has accumulated more points. Yeah, it came out in the last couple of days because they both had 31 matches in charge of Chelsea. Pochettino with 14 wins, Potter with 12 wins. And it's quite eerily strange to see how both of their futures went after those 31 games where Potter was pretty much on the brink. It felt like he was on the brink when he first started actually in the job, to be honest. But I think the biggest 
conclusion you can draw from this because I know a lot of people will be thinking well Graham Potter was sacked after 31 games and he's got an even better record or marginally better record than Poch it's because Poch has let's say credit in the bank from his career he could potentially change this situation around for Chelsea but when Marley was speaking yesterday about Poch I actually had an epiphany which I thought I'm going to save this for another podcast and it might be a big quote but I'm actually not quite sure Pochettino is as good as what everyone's making out. Because I was just thinking, has he made an absolute error after Spurs in terms of his career choices? Because at Spurs, he had almost the luxury of having one of the best strikers we've ever seen in the country come through at the same time as him. He's had some incredible players come through and the signings were amazing. Well, Toby Ardeviroud, Vertonghen, Moussa Dembele, etc, etc. It was really good. And then after that, of course, he went to the Champions League final, probably did as best as he could at Spurs. I think they probably should have won something. And then he goes to a club which is run in the most polar opposite way of Spurs, to Paris Saint-Germain, where he suddenly becomes a head coach, and that's it. He has all these prima donna egos. He's basically told by a dictatorship above him, this is what you're doing, these are the players we're getting, you just coach them, you manage them. And he was criticised despite winning the league there. And then he goes to Chelsea which is pretty much running the exact same way, where you've got a dictatorship above him, he's a head coach, he's been given all these players, you don't know what to do with half of them. And I'm just thinking to myself, is Pochettino actually the coach we're thinking in and imagining in our heads? I know he's got really nice charisma and he's got that charm about him and I feel like the British people in general like him because of his stint at Tottenham and how well he came across. But he didn't win anything in England. And he also didn't win anything at Southampton. He played well, amazing football. But is he actually this coach that we think he really is? Is he is he an elite coach? Because I know a lot of managers who've won things at Paris Saint-Germain and a lot of them were pretty crap, to be honest. Let's, let's put it out there. At Chelsea, they've had a lot of managers, but a lot of them have won, regardless of if they've been good or bad. At Chelsea, struggling still. So I'm wondering, are we idealising Pochettino here? Because... Their records are identical and yet he gets leverage because of his past. Of course, Potter has only managed Brighton and Ostersund and you can't really go off that. But I feel like he has a little bit of credit in the bank based on this idea we have of him. But is this idea a little bit in the past now? Well, you're expecting him to be able to at least string an identity together, which Chelsea fans haven't seen. I've just seen one report this morning that says Chelsea are freestyling under Maurizio Pochettino. I think it's a fair comment. I couldn't tell you if I turned on a Chelsea game this weekend, Marley, what I'm going to get. Couldn't tell you. And that's not what fans want now. Fans are open to the idea of managers coming in, having a bit of time to get a philosophy going and a style of play out there on the pitch. We haven't seen that from Pochettino. No, and that's why, um, you know, when, when I've been talking about Chelsea this week, I, I, I say that I, I don't get what they are, you know. That's why I expect a little bit more from Pochettino. Um, you expect him to have the at least form a decent starting eleven and decent level of performance out of that te- out of that team, even if it's leaving out some big names and sort of working on a system and leaving out Thiago Silva or Conor Gallagher or Caicedo or whoever it is. Um, but he, he just hasn't done that yet, and he hasn't. Um, figured out what his best 11 is and he's been in the job like you know six months now and they've had a quiet January um, which is probably the 
you know, the quietest they've had since, well, definitely the quietest month they've had since Bowley came in. Um, but they're at a point now where they've, they've got to just write off this, this, this season as, um, you know, treat, treat the last sort of 15 games as, as a learning curve and just get used to each other, get used to one system or, you know, whatever you want to, um, whatever you want to implement into that team and just get them used to it, ready for next season, because they'll be com- competing on one front again next season. They won't be in Europe or anything like that, uh, unless they win the Carabao final. But, you know, it's um, it's it's at that point now, because you can't, realistically, you can't sack him, because there's no point. There's loads of compensation to pay. Um, there's not an obvious candidate out there. And there's the PSR sort of threat that's um that's hanging over them in the in the future. Nobody understands from the outside how that's gonna reserve uh resolve itself with these nine year contracts and eight year contracts and big fees. Any manager coming into that is gonna be like, well what's going on with that? Like are we gonna able to keep these players long term or is there a, a realistic threat of a uh a points deduction coming because nobody wants to launch into that really. So it's a bit of a bit of a mess at Chelsea, but I feel like Todd Bowley's ignorance to the English game has has uh, has backfired quicker than we maybe quicker than anyone expected. Really, obviously, the conversations as you touched upon there, Marley, around Pochettino and him potentially being sacked, Joel, come down to whether Chelsea can afford to do it. The PSR conversation is one we've had around Everton and Nottingham Forest, and of course, Chelsea are implicated in that as well because we know how much money they've spent on all of these players and then the eight-year contracts and amortization and all of the rest of it do you think that Chelsea are withholding making a decision on Rizzo Pochettino's future because of the financial implications a decision like that might have yeah because he signed what a three-year contract and he did have to pay him and his team out of that three-year contract well two and a half years now because he barely even touched the soil at Stamford Bridge I would like to think that after the Potter episode where he barely even lasted, what, five or six months, I'd like to think that they've learned from it a little bit and realised actually if we're going to give a manager that that kind of contract and allow him to have all these kinds of players, we need to at least give him some kind of time to bed in, at least, the very least, at least a year. I mean, in six months, what what can you do? And I know Pochettino came out in his press conference the other day and said, the expectation at Chelsea is different from the reality, so it's difficult to get what you deserve. I mean, they don't deserve anything right now, but the expectation at Chelsea is different. Yeah, but as we said five minutes ago, the expectation is for them to have a style of play by now. Even if they lose a few games, at least have an idea of what you're trying to do. Gary O'Neill's managed to do it at Wolves. You can't compare the two clubs. It's impossible. The, the expectation and the pressure at Chelsea has always been so high. Even under Abramovich, if a manager doesn't do something right within the first year, he's gone out the door and the next guy's in. This feels like a very similar regime. And that's why I feel like Poch has a lot of pressure to get things right when he's got, what, 30 new players in, 20 players out. It's a difficult scenario for any manager, I think. Well, that being said then, you mentioned it there, under Abramovich, Chelsea had dugout pressure you could call it where they knew that if a manager wasn't doing well he would get sacked and someone else would come in that hire and fire culture we've spoken about it worked for them would anyone want the Chelsea job now with the way things are if Pochettino got sacked would there be a queue of people wanting to manage Chelsea if the money's there the honey's there isn't it I mean 
any any top manager in the world will want the Chelsea job regardless because it's it's still a high figure job. Probably not as attractive as under the Bra- Abramovich era because, like you say, it was almost like getting into a relationship and knowing after two years we need to part ways kind of thing. So just get as much as you can do in that two years and then we'll part. No, we don't need to elongate the process. Whereas under Bowley, I don't quite know what they're looking for. It's not like that anymore though, Joel. Damaged goods. <laughs> That's very true, to be honest. And again, I don't know what Tobol is looking for. Is, is he looking for a five-year marriage? Is he looking for a 10-year marriage? Are we all, as football fans, romanticising the fact that 10-year managers is a thing anymore? It's very rare, isn't it? I feel like for Chelsea as a club, like you just said, because it works so well in the past and it seems like the hierarchy by the, the players and then the managers kind of tend to them, the biggest players in the world. Maybe that is the, that is the strategy to go for. But it just it feels like now there's not enough managers to do that anymore. Because it felt like under the Abramovich era from, let's say, 05 to 2015, there was always a top quality manager available to replace where you have Vias Boas and then you had Ancelotti and then you had Gus Hiddink and then Rafa Benitez. And then the list just kept going on and on and on. Now it feels like there's a new guard and I wouldn't even know. I mean, I'd hedge my bets at someone like Luis Enrique coming in next or I don't even know, Spalletti or something. Any new manager that comes in is going to want to do his own thing uh, in the in the market and, um, you know, sign his own players and stuff. So I don't know what, um, I don't know the, the easiest solution. Probably the, the, the ideal thing is to have a head coach come in and just be happy with the players that he's got. And, you know, like Steve Cooper at Nottingham Forest, where he was just like, I don't care who we sign, just once he's on the training field, I'll try and, um, you know, I'll, I'll try and train him into the player. I think, I think the, 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 the team needs and ultimately it didn't work long term because the, all the players that were signed, once they were, once he realized that they weren't that good, he's the one that pays for his job um, with, you know, being sacked by, by Marinakis. And that's why we felt sorry for him at the time because his success was deemed a failure on the back of them signing some pretty dud players, really. Um, so you see it at Chelsea and obviously they've got way higher you know, budget and wages and transfer fees and stuff, but they've still got a lot of holes in that team that a new manager is going to look at before he joins Chelsea and say, right, I'm not happy with, you know, the, the defence is poor, so I want to find a defender in the market. But then they've got Baddy Ishiel on an eight-year contract and Dizassi on an eight-year contract and a 39-year-old Thiago Silva and, you know, Cole Will, who's suffering from sort of lack of, lack of confidence instilled in him by being in the team one week and out the team another week, sometimes playing left centre-back in a back three, sometimes playing left-back in a back four. Cucurella sitting there still trying to work out why he's worth £63 million. Um, There's there's loads of, of things to answer for a new manager and you know, if, if they went and got one, number one, who's out there? And number two, who's going to come in and not want to reshape the squad, therefore costing you another, you know, 200 million minimum, probably half a billion more, more likely. And have Chelsea got the long-term sustainability to do that? I, I'm not entirely sure they have with, with what they've already spent. I feel like they've, they've kind of, they've shot their shot really. Um, and 
it doesn't look like it's worked. So we could get Chelsea being the most expensively assembled mid-table Premier League team for a couple of years if they don't sort this out. I've just been cracking over the Telegram group of ours where Angie A said, has anyone seen what Potter's been up to? And Matt's replied, I believe Potter's living under the cupboard under his stairs at the auntie and uncle's house, just waiting to get his invite. <laughs> any analogy to do with Potter kills me, honestly, especially whenever John Joe Shelby used to play against him. You are such a pair of geeks, you two, honestly. With your Harry Potter... Oh, Jesus. I'm more of a Lord of the Rings man, oh, than me, that's not Harry worse. Potter. It's even worse. <laughs> no, it isn't. That's Come on. It's be- no, it's better, actually. Lord of the Rings won 13 Oscars. How many Oscars did Harry Potter We're, we're in it for the glory, not the honour mentions. The square root of all is how many Oscars Harry, Harry Potter po- won. Has, has Lord of the Rings got a, a theme park at any of the major ones? Didn't think a so. A theme park? That's what we're judging good cinematography on now, Absolutely. Are we? Whether it's Absolutely. got a theme park or not. We've got legacy. You've just got the honour mentions. Hell, the Cat in the Hat's got a theme park in Florida. You're saying that's a good film as well. Not bad. <laughs> Get a grip, John. Lord of the Rings away. Can't wait to have it. <laughs> We're not here to talk about movies or Oscars. We're supposed to be talking about Pochettino. And he got the dreaded text of confidence from the owners, Marley. He got a text saying that, well, he says a good text from the owners and saying that he's in conversation with the owners and sporting director at Chelsea every single day and that the signs are positive and the vibes are good. Well, let me bring you back to January 2023, where the Chelsea owners say they remain confident Potter will ride out the storm at Stamford Bridge. Didn't take long before he was sacked after that. Never a good sign when a manager comes out and says, oh, it's OK. Look, I've got an email from the owner saying we're backing you. The only person that would be happy about that text is probably Frank Lampard because he thinks he's going to get yet another stab at a job he's done nothing to uh, to prove he's actually worthy of. So he's probably thinking, oh, hey, I've got a, got a chance to go in for another couple of months at the end of the season if they sack Poch and make things ev- just make things worse. Um, so, yeah, it, we all know it doesn't do anything. The, the, how many times have we seen the, um, the vote of confidence be swiftly dismissed about two weeks later? Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd be more interested in the bookies' odds of, of what they've got for him to go. Um, but I don't think, as I've said, I don't think it solves anything. Well, Maurizio Pochettino is still in place at Stamford Bridge at the moment. Who knows how long that will last for? We know what the patience of the Chelsea fans is like. And at the best of times, it can be thin. Next, though, on Football Social Daily, we're not going to be talking about the future of the dugout. We're going to be talking about the future of a stadium. As new Manchester United ownership, well, they've got 25% in the club and they're taking over football operations, so we're told. Ineos, run by Sir Jim Ratcliffe, they're interested in completely either revamping or rebuilding the famous Old Trafford football ground. We'll talk about that next on FSD. Final part of today's Football Social Daily. My name's Niall, joined by Marley, who's a Newcastle fan, and Joel, who's a Manchester United fan, which is good because that's what we're going to talk about next. The news that Old Trafford might be either renovated or rebuilt. And actually, the fresh investment from Sir Jim Ratcliffe's Ineos group has kind of reinvigorated those conversations that have been murmuring for a while, Joel, in terms of a a fresh-faced stadium for, for your football club. What's your take? Are you a refresh renew or rebuild restart kind of guy so the news that's been kind of sweeping away in the socials and the newspapers is that Jim Ratcliffe apparently wants to build a Wembley of the North which is a 90,000 seater 
stadium kind of capacity, increase it, that kind of thing. And on first initial reaction, one, it's actually positive in the fact that I'm happy that there's a bit of proactivity going on behind the club where they're not just waiting and resting on the laurels, they're actually trying to get something going, which is what I like. But in terms of the stadium, it's such a difficult one because if if there's an opportunity to renovate the current stadium and make it world-class inside in terms of the turnstiles, in terms of the just the general look of the place, because if anyone's been in the Old Trafford turnstiles, they are not fit for purpose. I'm sorry, but with the amount of fans that it holds, it's not fit for purpose at all. For a club of that size, the facilities are poor. The general experience inside the concourse is not good enough at all. The turnstiles are tiny. It needs to be better. When you're a club of that size, it needs to be better, I'm sorry. If you're a billion pound organisation, you need to be looking like a billion pound organisation. That's why the likes of Real Madrid, Barcelona, Tottenham, why? Arsenal. Why? Who, who are you trying to impress? You're Manchester United Football Club. You're one of the biggest clubs in the world. That isn't going to change just because your turnstiles are twice as wide. You need to move with the times. You can't just keep, you can't remain behind while all your competitors are going ahead. It makes no sense. Right, okay. Well, here's the problem with that comment, moving with the times. The times move quicker than football does. The Emirates Stadium is not even 20 years old and yet a couple of miles away on the other side of North London, they've got the most new, modern, flashy stadium in the world that makes the Emirates look outdated. The Emirates is effectively still a brand new structure. I don't know if it looks out of day, but I mean, it's the fact that United are second best in the North when it comes to the stadium now. Whenever there's events on, if it's holding concerts, it needs to repurpose. Clubs need to find a new way to bring in new streams. That's the reason why the Santiago Bernabeu is now one of the biggest digitalized stadium in the world because they need to bring in new streams. That's the way it is. It's a business. It's a business. But I, That's it. I don't understand this thought process. You're speaking of the viewpoint of a fan of Manchester United, a fan base in which have criticized the ownership for being too commercially minded and now you're sat there saying that you want them to commercialise the stadium to bring in an extra revenue stream. That wasn't the sole purpose. If you listen to my point, it was to increase the fan experience, increase the turnstile experience, make it a modern experience for the fans. It's not fit for purpose anymore. Anyone who's been in it will agree with me. For fans who go on a day-to-day -day basis, we want something better. I don't want a new stadium because... We've seen from the likes of Tottenham, the likes of Arsenal, it's a little bit soulless. And that's why I like the fact that Real Madrid haven't got to knock down such an historic place. Barcelona, I know they've kind of knocked it down, but they're remaining integral to what the camp now is. Manchester United, if we have a chance to do that, 100% we renovate it. But it's, it's more so... It's competition at the end of the day. United can't be seen as a club that is almost like second best in everything. It's a billion, billion pound organisation. And I get where you're coming from. If that, the fa But the fans are integral in this. It increases the match day experience, it increases everything around it, and it makes it better for everyone. I'm going to use a really rickety analogy here, but Bill Gates is one of the richest men on the planet. Wears a Casio watch. He's not walking around in a Rolex. He's a billionaire. He doesn't need to impress anyone. And I feel like sometimes it's about who's got the brightest, best stadium and who's got the best sponsors. And it's not about the actual football on the pitch. And so whilst I agree with you that Old Trafford is in need of a renovation, I'm not sure that I can agree with the comment that it's not fit for purpose. I was there on Sunday against West Ham. There was 74,000 inside Old Trafford. Everyone was loving it. So the actual experience as a fan, what does it boil down to? Does it boil down to what you watch in front of you? Because as an arena, I'm talking the actual stadium bowl, I still think that's as good as you're going to get anywhere in European football, anywhere. That is special. 
But again, what is it about? Is it about that? Or is it about the, I'm going to have to go down to the concourse five minutes early to get my pie and my beer because there's queues. I mean, I'm not really sure what the fan experience is missing at Old Trafford because generally I don't go as a supporter. So I'm kind of I'm kind of intrigued to, for you to fill in the gaps for me because I think sat in the stands, it's as good as anywhere. It's obviously away from that that you're concerned about. No, 100%. Don't get me wrong. If nothing happens to the stadium for the next 50 years, I'm not going to go protesting about it because I go to watch the game and that's it. But when I've been to other stadiums with teams that are, are as big as Man United, it is not good enough. You realise just how far behind United have gone. And that's a, that's a total shambles when you look at the ownership of the club. It just resembles what the ownership is. It's not about trying to compete and trying to build, you know, this big business in terms of the stadium. A good a good stadium is reflective of top owners who care about the club. If you've got a stadium that's far behind all of the rest of the world-class clubs in the world, it's testament to the fact that the club is being neglected. Every single big organization needs to keep slowly moving with the times and it's natural, it's a natural progression. If the stadium's better, brings in more revenue, which means the team get better, which means there's more money. I mean, it's, an, it's a perpetual cycle. It needs to be better. I am playing devil's advocate here because I do agree with you in the main. But also, I don't think the fact that Old Trafford is a little bit shaggy behind the scenes and in the concourses, definitely need to touch up and a lick of paint at the very least. I don't think that's putting off fans coming to the stadium and watching Manchester United. I don't think that's putting off players coming and playing for the club because the stadium's not quite as good as the Bernabeu or as good as any other ground. I don't think that's putting players off or fans off from coming to the match. And that's why there's been no investment uh, now because the Glazers realised that they could, for the next 50 years, not touch the stadium and they'll sell out time and time again. But it takes care and there's a reason why there's been a conversation about the stadium because it is known and it's been known for a while. We sh you know, take away the renovation. We should have another stand above the Munich Tunnel stand. But it's not been done because the Glazers have neglected it and they know, just from your point, that if they don't touch the stadium, they will sell out time and time and time again. That's a poorly run club. You need to be proactive. You need to be generating and thinking of innovative, innovative ways to start progressing your club even, even more forward because it's almost like that ingrains inside the culture of a club anyway. If players are coming to a, a football club that's run like Real Madrid who are really going for modern, modernity and they really want to progress the club, well, that shows just what the club is. They're forward thinking. Man United for the last 20 years have been backward thinking or they've been stagnant. And it kind of reflects on what the ownership is. Are you going to take care of the club? Or are you going to just leave it behind, paint over the cracks and ignore it? Because there's going to come a time where in the next 40, 50 years, if they didn't touch the stadium, it, you will have to at some point. Because, you know, it's, a, it's an old stadium. You have to acknowledge that it's 114 years old. At some point, there's going to be some kind of way that needs to be developed, you know? Yeah, and I think that's fair. And actually, speaking from my own experience as a Pompey fan, we've had to kind of renovate Fratton Park. And actually, most of the work that's been done at Fratton Park over the last five years or so has been stuff that you can't see, like foundations of the stand and taken away corroded steel because obviously Pompey's a seaside city, you get salt water in the air and that doesn't do very well for, for older structures. So stuff like that, things that you don't see, they're all things that have needed to be done because of a lack of investment and neglect 
of previous owners. And I think that you raise a really good point because these are all things that people probably don't notice going to Old Trafford once every fortnight. For me, Marley, the interesting conversation is I do worry about the impact that has on atmospheres and Premier League atmospheres I've criticised anyway on this podcast a number of times. Yeah, it's um, it's one of the side effects of uh, of growing as a club. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how successful you are. Um, it can have an effect on on you know fan atmosphere and stuff. If you go to Barcelona, if you go to Real Madrid, if you go to Man City, Liverpool, it is full of tourists, and that is because there's there's, there's a point there where um, you sort of trade atmosphere in 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 form of you know like new fans and stuff like what what as you expand you you do lose the the authenticity i suppose of of a stadium man united's long gone man city's pretty much on the way pretty much gone as well um it's interesting watching newcastle because at the minute we've still got it but this season compared to previous seasons there has been a lot of ticketing um friction from fans of um you know the the owners are making it easier for new fans to get tickets and the the older fans that have been going through 14 years of crap with Mike Ashley and stuck with the club are sometimes not getting tickets when newer fans are and it's like well why are these glory hunters getting tickets before us like where were they when where were they when we were crap type of thing but that that just happens <clears throat> and man united after have to think about that really because ultimately commercial success is is more important for the club however for the fans fan experience and and um relating to your club is more important than than anything um and identifying with the club so it's a tough one um there's a balance to be struck at the minute i think man united are past it you know they, they've they've got neither you know, they've got a stadium full of tourists and a leaky roof in the middle of it. So it doesn't even make sense. You've got neither one nor the other. So um, there's obvious work to be done, whether it's a renovation or a full move, I'm not sure. But I would be tempted to to renovate it um, because there's nothing wrong with the capacity. I think if the capacity was 50,000 or 45,000, obviously you can sell out more. But 80,000 is enough week on week. At, at Old Trafford, it's it's absolutely enough to sustain you and bring in enough money. So, I don't see the point in moving, um, moving fully, as in knocking it down and, and rebuilding it. Um, I don't get that really. Um, and the, the, obviously, the cost is is insane as well. So, um, for me, if I was them, just improve the stadium, make it. Obviously, you're not going to get it to like Spurs levels, which was built from the ground up and every little bit was designed, but you can certainly make it a lot nicer um, and more modern for the match-going fan. I'm inclined to agree. I think there's a spirituality around football grounds as well. West Ham leaving the bowling ground, Upton Park, and then moving to the London Stadium. With that being flattened, they lost the spirit of Upton Park. And with that comes a natural atmosphere habitual amongst supporters that go to the ground to act in a certain way whereas when you start from the ground up and you build a new stadium you lose that completely and Old Trafford does have this spirit and it's a historic place a historic football stadium so yeah the one thing that kind of sticks in my throat a little bit when I see things like the World Cup in 2026 
that's being hosted in the United States, Canada and Mexico. The final being moved to Giant Stadium in New York, I believe it is. Uh, sorry, in New Jersey. An incredible venue. A colossus of a stadium with no doubt amazing facilities, both in the concourses and out in the actual arena itself. But it's just surrounded by six or seven concrete parking lots, multiple highways. You can't walk to the venue. There's absolutely no no soul around the place. It's just kind of a stadium slapped in the middle of a concrete plain. There's nothing that entices me about that stadium whatsoever. And I'm worried that that might happen to Premier League football because the amount of stadiums I've visited over the years following Pompey that have just been new builds in an industrial state with nowhere to have a beer before the game, nowhere to sort of entertain yourself before the game, no way to sample the atmosphere of the city that you're in. Um, I'd be I'd be sad to see that happen to to Premier League grounds. Yeah, I think that's quite typical, isn't it, in America where they have a, a, a huge stadium and then surrounding it is just concrete jungle of just nothingness because they have no space to uh, to put their stadiums. I know that you get a lot of American listeners and viewers almost flabbergasted at how these European stadiums slap bang in the middle of a city. So if you look at like Madrid, for example, you got Atletico and uh, Real. I mean, the old Vicente Calderon, that was literally on top of a highway where the cars were going underneath one of the main stands. You'd never, ever get that in the States. I think you both raise really good points, which is that although the atmospheres are almost long gone, you don't want your stadium to turn into what's almost become quote-unquote stereotype of a, a soulish goldfish bowl, which is, I think, what's happened at the Wanda Metropolitano, uh, Atletico's one. is nothing on the Calderon at all in terms of their kind of, the atmosphere that they used to generate there. The Upton Park, again, it felt like more up close and personal, and now it just feels like you need binoculars just to see your favourite player on the pitch. Same with the Emirates. I feel like it's improving slightly, but it just bewilders me when architects have thought about that stadium and thought, why do we make it circular so the fans behind the goal are far away from it? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. It's like they've not thought about what fans want, but like Marley touched on, I think clubs now are understanding that they have to cater for a new type of fan. And that's the one that maybe comes once in their lifetime. And they want to make it the perfect experience, interactive digital experience, which almost flaunts how amazing their club is. And of course, the match going fans, I'm the same as you now. I don't really care for, you know, playing a digital game in the concourse before the game starts or anything like that. But... I do want to feel comfortable at the same time. You know, in one of the turnstiles that one of my friends sits in, Old Trafford, we can't even go down because everyone's packed in like sardines and you can't even get a drink or anything. I think that's the bare minimum just to have good facilities, good toilet facilities, just generally good facilities. That's the bare minimum of a top football club at United. And that's why I think it is really outdated at the moment. And when you look at other clubs, it is quite scary. I mean, even when I went to Lisbon, and I was looking around their stadium and I know that's relatively new. I think it was 2003 that got built for the Euros. And I was like, my mind was blown at just how good the facilities were. And then I go back to Manchester United, one of the biggest clubs in the world. And I'm thinking, what went wrong? Of course, the outside, the pitch, incredible, one of the best stadiums in the world. But go and ask T3 people who were sat in tier three, 
what their viewing experience is like when you got the roof literally slanted and you can't even see barely the other half of the pitch. These things shouldn't be happening. It should be better than that. Um, so if it calls for a decision, I'm more inclined to believe that Rat Jim Ratcliffe would want to make a new stadium. I feel like this is decades away, by the way. I don't think it's anytime soon. But I think majority of match-going fans would want to keep Old Trafford. Whereas I feel like more modern new fans who maybe come, you know, once a year, that kind of thing, I think they'd be more inclined to get a new stadium. But I'd be so worried that the, the aura around the place would die. And you can't recreate that. I feel like the only way you recreate is with history. And that takes decades, 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 doesn't it? All right. Well, Manchester United, could they be in line for a renovated or completely new Old Trafford Stadium? That's one for the future. Decades away, says Joel. But the next podcast won't be decades away. It'll be tomorrow because that's what we do here at Football Social Daily. So hit subscribe or follow and that way you'll never miss a show again. New podcasts right throughout the week. And if you do hit subscribe, then why not join our Telegram chat as well, which you can find by hitting the link in the description. It's free to join. So go ahead and click that as well as the links to all of our social media pages. But from Ali, Joel and I, that's it for FSD today. Speak to you again tomorrow. <laughs>